Um, if you have a Bible with you today, let me invite you to turn to the, the scripture passage that was just read, 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we've, been, we've been working through this, this book, this letter of 1 Peter now for, for quite a while, uh, but after today, we just have three more weeks left, three more weeks, um, and so we're getting to the end. Uh, this is, is such a great uh, letter with, with so much truth, and for those of you who, who have been here for, for the duration of this series, or even maybe just a, a portion of this series, I, I hope that you've seen that, um, how, how rich it is. Uh, how much truth is found here, and I hope that you've been blessed by it. You know, even though First uh, Peter was written like 2,000 years ago, it's still so relevant to us today. Uh, because what Peter is teaching throughout is how Christians are called to live in a world that is not our true home. Which is why, again and again, Peter calls us exiles. He calls us sojourners or or strangers in this uh, world. Because that's who we are as followers of Jesus. We belong to God. We don't belong to this world. And so in light of that, Peter writes to to help us know how to live. He shows us uh, who we are and and what our perspective should be uh, when we face uh, trials of many kinds, when we, when we suffer. He, he tells us how, how we're supposed to relate to our, our bosses or our employees. He, he tells us how we're supposed to view the government here on earth and how we're supposed to see ourselves as, as singles or, or as wives or, or as husbands. And now today, we're going to see Peter address how followers of Jesus are called to relate to one another uh, within the context of the local church. This is really an an incredibly profound uh, passage, and I hope through it, uh, you'll see just how much Jesus cares uh, about the church um, and also how we treat one another within the church. I also want to say a little disclaimer about the local church before we, we begin. Uh, I, I've told you before, uh, I think every, almost every other week or so, that, that Peter is writing here, this, this, this letter, First Peter, it's written to a group of people uh, who are located in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. Okay? You can kind of get the visualization of that on the map. But through all of these weeks, I think this is like week 17 now or something like that in this series, um, I realized, I'm I'm not sure that I ever specifically stated uh, that that Peter is writing to churches here. I've said he's writing to people, believers in modern day Turkey, but I'm not sure I've ever specifically stated that he's writing to churches here, um, which he is. Uh, See, this is the the pattern of the New Testament, whether it's Galatians, Philippians, uh, Ephesians, Romans, uh, Revelation, right, and and on and on and on. We know that these letters, these New Testament letters, were written to local gatherings of people, which would then be read aloud and and then passed from, from house to house. Or today we'd say from, from church to church. That was the pattern of the New Testament. And so let me be really clear with this. Uh, when you read the New Testament, when you read the New Testament, it assumes that if you are a follower of Jesus, that if you claim to be a disciple of Christ, the New Testament assumes that you belong to a local body of believers, that you belong to a local church. In fact, that is so obvious, it's so obvious that the New Testament doesn't even directly say that you need to join a local church anywhere. It doesn't even say it. Because everyone, everyone who belonged to Jesus belonged to a local gathering. That was just assumed. There'd be no reason to even state that you needed to do that. That was just the pattern. You, you gave your life 
to Jesus. You were then baptized as an outward expression of your faith, symbolizing that you had had gone from death to life. And then always, always, you were welcomed into a local gathering of believers. And that was the case for hundreds and hundreds of years, since the beginning of Christianity, or what we'll call the beginning of the church. But now, fast forward to today, 2021, and what we see now is that the local church is often misunderstood, minimized, or sadly, uh, disregarded altogether. And at least in my opinion, um, that's, it's actually kind of understandable. Uh, because think about it. Think about this. Maybe you, haven't, you probably haven't thought about this as deeply as I have. Um, but, but think about this. Today, today, we have house churches. We have mega churches. We have parachurches. We have church online. Denominations, missions organizations, networks, conferences, cohorts. And then we have a group of people who call themselves Christians who don't belong to any of those. And that's, that's not even highlighting the differences between those churches and organizations. We have theology differences, methodology differences, worship styles, liturgy, opinions about what's the t- right time for the service, What's the right size for the gathering? During the worship time, the the music, do you raise your hands or keep your hands lowered? Does the pastor preach through books of the Bible or does he preach on relevant topics? And that's just the start. And what happens and what has happened amidst all of this, all of this today, is that the significance and primacy of Jesus' local church it has, has become often misunderstood or just lost entirely. But what every single believer, follower of Jesus, needs to know is that Jesus' church, his local church, is plan A for your life. And he doesn't need a plan B because his plans always work. The local church is plan A. Other organizations, networks, circles, whatever you want to call it, my Christian group, my Christian friends over there, they can be healthy, they can even be fruitful. But listen, nothing, nothing replaces the primacy and priority of the local church. So we need to keep this in mind as we work through our passage today and discuss how we are supposed to relate to one another. Peter, along with all the other New Testament writers, assumes that you and I, as followers of Jesus, are committed to and belong to a local church. And so with that, in light of that, Peter says this, starting in verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4 Starting in verse 7, he says this. The end of all things is at hand. We'll pause there. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things here that Peter references is the great day of judgment, which Peter mentioned, if you just kind of skim your eyes above. Uh, He talked about this in verses 5 through 6, which we touched on a lot last week. And you remember, if you, if you were listening last week or you're here with us last week, you remember that we said that on that day, on the day of judgment, that great day, the one true living God of the universe will judge both the living and the dead. In other words, in other words, every single person who's ever lived, all of us, no one escapes this, will either be found in Jesus forgiven and loved and enter into glory with God and his people forever, or on that day we will be found standing on our own record 
and in our own guilt, our own shame, we will be justly judged for our sin and separated from God forever. Those two options. And so when Peter refers to the end here, the end, that's what he's talking about. The end of reality as we currently know it. And the judgment that will usher us into the new forever reality. And so I want to say this, this, this as well. Just so You can write this in the margins or take a note of this. The phrase, the end here, isn't stated uh, to tell us it's the end of everything, period. It's just the end of reality as we currently know it before we enter into the forever reality. And I also want to say that that phrase, the end here, it isn't written or stated um, anywhere really throughout scriptures, but, but here as well, very clearly, it's not stated to make us feel bad or, or to, be, to cause deep anxiety or even to depress you, like, oh man, the end is coming. He's not saying it that way. No, th- this is just meant to alert us to this reality, that the end is coming, it's near. And, and, and he says this so that you and I would prioritize the gospel, that we would turn to Jesus, that we would change our thinking and our living. That's why this is written. And so Peter says, we are moving closer to that final day. We don't know the exact day. We don't know the exact hour. No one does. But Jesus is returning. Jesus is coming soon. And therefore, we should live our lives as though that final day, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's where Peter's going. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, we should live today with that future reality in mind. You know, and I, and I think we all, all, all know this. If we just examined our lives, even if I gave you like five minutes right now, and just examine your life, um, I think we all know that, that how we think and, and, and feel about the future really, really impacts the present. Uh, isn't that true in your life? I mean, think about this. It, if you believe your future is, is hopeless and, and dark, right, that's going to affect how you see your life, see yourself, and how you live today. And if you believe on the other side, if you believe that the future is filled with hope, and glory, and meaning, and love, and justice, that too is going to affect how you live and how you process through the things of this world. So the end is at hand, Peter says. And therefore, there are some things that you should be doing as a follower of Jesus. Now, what's so interesting to me about this passage is that from here, kind of in light of that reality, we might expect, I did, I expected Peter then to call us to something really extraordinary. Like something really risky, deeply profound. The end of the reality as you know it, it is coming and so, I don't know, what would he say? Something really deep, really profound, really risky. Like give it all, something. But actually he doesn't, doesn't do that here. Not, not here at least. Instead, what we, we, we see that Peter simply calls us, he simply calls us to be faithful followers together. That's it. Because the end is at hand, the day of the Lord's coming soon, be faithful followers together. And we're going to see that reveal itself in four different ways, which is going to take up the rest of our time this morning. So let's work through these. Let's work through these together. Um, Number one, we'll start here. Because the end of things, all things, is at hand, what should we do? 
Because the day of the Lord is drawing near, what should we do? He tells us, first of all, pray soberly. Pray soberly. Look at the rest of verse 7. He says, again, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, or in light of that reality, in light of that that, that end, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. As end-of-the-age people, that's who we are, by the way. We are sojourners, exiles, strangers, and we are end-of-age people. That's who we are. Because we are those people, Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, we know that that self-control, self-control, it is using your trust in Jesus. It's using your trust in the Lord to exert control over passions and desires in your life that would lead you to sin. Sin against God and, and sin against other people. That's essentially what self-control is, at least, at least biblically. So, When ungodly, he's saying, when ungodly passions come about or stir up from within you, when those passions and desires try to lure you away from God, when they try to get you to engage in sinful thoughts and and sinful living, be self-controlled, meaning that you, you rely in that moment, when that time comes, when that lure is in front of you, you rely on the strength of Jesus Christ. You look to Jesus in faith and say no. Self-control, then, is a really, really good thing. It's a really, really good thing. And it's sad to me that I actually have to say that, but I do uh, in the 21st century. As the church, as followers of Jesus, end-of-age people, we need to actually recapture, take back this idea for our good and for the good of others. You know, I think in so many ways, actually, within our culture and even sometimes in the church, we've given up on this, actually, which is why so often within our culture, I'm sure you've heard this before, you'll hear people so often say a phrase like this, Oh, just be who you are. Just be who you are. Have you heard that before? Maybe you've said that before. Gives you great comfort. Oh, you're struggling with who you are, your identity, what to do, how to live. Just be who you are. And sure, right, on the one hand, on the one hand, there's something biblical about that. Um, God has created us in his image. And at the same time, he has made us, each of us, each and every one of us here, watching online, unique, diverse. That is true. But at the same time, at the same time, the Bible does issue sober warnings to us about not embracing certain things about ourselves. And so there are beautiful and wonderful things about us that should be embraced. And yet, at the same time, because of our sinful nature, there are passions and desires within us that should be, need to be pushed away, denied. And so culture, culture, the world tells us, the world is telling you, even now, subtly or overtly, it's telling you, embrace it all. Embrace who you are. Embrace however you feel. Whatever your passion is, whatever is your desire, go for it. Just be you, right? That's the message. But that's not enough. Simultaneous to that, they look at Christians, the world looks at the church and says, it's unloving to say otherwise, (laughs) It's unloving to tell people to deny themselves and to say no to who they are. To tell people to say no to what they feel and what they want to do. 
But again, God warns us that our natural desires can't be trusted because we are naturally sinful. And so in love, God says, in love, God says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Listen to my ways. Go my way. Follow my will. I'm seeking to help you, not to harm you. I'm calling you to life. I'm calling you to joy. I'm calling you to freedom. I'm calling you to be who you are actually designed to be. So be self-controlled and sober-minded. And you see here, Peter's ultimate concern, at least right here, is for our prayers, which has a deeper meaning. You can see what it says there again. For the sake of your prayers, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Which is to say, which is to say Peter is very concerned here about our God-centeredness. That's what he's really talking about here. You know, we, we talked about this uh, quite a bit at the beginning of this year, you know, when we had our teaching series on, on prayer. Uh, we even talked about this in the, it's our theme for this year, that we want to be centered people, centered on, on Christ. But we know, we know that one of the main ways, one of the main ways, primary ways that our faith in God and our belonging to him reveals itself is through our prayer life. Your relationship with God, for better or for worse, is revealed in your prayers or your lack of prayer. I could say it that way. Our prayer life, for better or worse, reveals a lot about us. And follow me here. Uh, if you can follow this train of thought with me just for, for a second. Really what Peter's saying is a lack of self-control. If you lack self-control, that reveals a self-centered heart. And self-centered hearts won't be able to pray. And actually, don't pray. And hearts that don't pray won't be God-centered. And therefore, there's no true or lasting or deep, profound relationship with the Lord. That's what Peter's saying. But self-control and sober-mindedness keep us grounded, rooted, in who God is, in who we are, and where we are going. So Peter says, since the end of all things is at hand, he says, cultivate and pursue self-control and sober-mindedness in your life. Why? For the sake of a close and intimate walk with our God. That's what he says. Number two. Number two. Because the end of all things is at hand, because the end of all things is at hand, he says, love earnestly. Love earnestly. And we see this in verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I want us to note here, make a note here, that this one another, it, that's actually worth, it's key to the text. You can underline that, circle it, highlight it in your Bible, that phrase, one another. That phrase is, again, Christians. It's referring to Christians within the context of the local church. That's what Peter's talking about here. And so, yes, there is a command that, in general, we are to love followers of Jesus, the universal church. Whoever is a part of the church, you're to love those people. But Peter is being more specific here. And I want to talk about love. I want to talk about love here just for, for a moment. Just for a moment. You see, typically in society, typically, 
the way we think about love, we think about love as, as something that just sort of uh, happens to us. Like it's something that, you can think of it this way, there, it, we think of love as, as if it's something that we have no control over. Which is why uh, you, again, I'm talking how, how culture speaks or how we speak, but you'll hear uh, phrases like this often when it comes to love. Oh, I fell in love with this person or fell out of love with this person. Almost like, if you think about that, it's almost like we're victims of love. I had no control. I just fell in love. Right? I, I didn't want, I was, but I just fell in love. I was just a victim of my heart, right? And as, as we speak this way, or and we speak this way, because we primarily associate love with our emotions. And since we believe that emotions just happen, uh, therefore, it, the progress here, the progression here, you can see it would follow that we don't decide who to love or, or when to love, which means these commands in the scriptures to love people can be really difficult and actually really confusing, I think. Like, I don't choose who to love or when to love or, or how to love. My emotions just take over and I, I love. So how can the Bible tell me to love always? Well, the, the reason the Bible can command us to love, like here, is because when Scripture speaks of love, it's speaking of love primarily as an activity not an emotion. I wanted to be careful to use this word, this phrase, but I'll, I will say it. Um, and just at the risk of knowing it might cause some, ooh, I, I don't like that word. But actually, the scriptures speak of love primarily, not just as an activity, but as a duty. It's your duty to love others. Much more than it is about your emotions. Now, of course, of course, your emotions likely will follow. But primarily, at least in the Bible, love is about an activity. And so in, in the scriptures, you could say that. It would be right for you to say and think that love is much more of a verb than it is a noun. It's more something we do than something that we feel. And so when God calls us, for example, to love our neighbors or to love our enemies, it's not a call. I hope you know this. It's not a call for you to feel warm and fuzzy thoughts towards your neighbor and towards your enemy. No, it's a call to act. It's a call to action. It's a call, as, as the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, it's a call to be patient and kind. It's a call to not boast. It's a call to, to not be arrogant. It's a call to love the truth. It's a call to bear all things, to hope in all things, to endure all things. In other words, it's a call, it's a call to be like Jesus towards others. Biblical love is wanting good for others in your life and personally sacrificing to make that happen, regardless of how we feel. I'll say that again. I think it's worth repeating. Biblical love is wanting good for others in your life and personally sacrificing to make that happen, regardless of how we feel. Notice as well, this is not a one-time act, but a, an ongoing posture of the heart, which is why Peter says here, he says, keep loving, keep loving, which means don't stop. Keep seeking the welfare of others. He's saying, be diligent in this. Look for opportunities again and again 
to, to love those who are around you and in your life. And let me say this as well. Let me say this as well. We are called to love others regardless, regardless of how we are treated by others. What I mean is, love, biblical love, is not contingent on other people loving us. So I don't have permission to to think or to say things like, oh, um, you don't love me, or I don't feel loved by, by you, and so I'm not going to love you back, right? That's not how, how it works. It doesn't work that way. Your call, the call on your life, what Jesus is calling you to, what Peter is commanding you to do here, is to love earnestly. You doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. You love earnestly. And if others love you back, if they choose to love you back, that's between them and the Lord, so don't allow, don't allow a lack of love towards you keep you from loving others. I know that's really hard, really hard to do. But, you know, what, what motivates, at least in the flesh it's hard, so what, so what motivates a love like this? What motivates this type of love? It's really simple. It's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. He compels me to love like this because he loves me that way, right? Unconditionally. He doesn't love me because I loved him. No, I love him because he loves me. See, that's contingent. Even my love to him is often contingent. When I feel the love of God in my life, oh, he loves me so much, he cares for me, I see his blessings, I'm going to live for you, Jesus. Yes, let's go. Right? But oftentimes when I don't feel his love, he seems distant from me, or I think he's distant from me, or he's not answering my prayers. Right? That's when I hunger to, oh, okay, fine, then I'm not going to do. You know, is he really real? Is this really worth it? Right? We, we live our lives contingent. <laughs> he isn't that way. And so what really, what's really happening here in this text is Peter, it's Jesus, he, he wants our corporate love, our love for each other as a local church to mirror something, to mirror something of his love for us. And why? Why? What's Peter's motivation for this point? Well, we see it here as well. What's his motivation for this? He says, keep loving one another earnestly since love, he says, covers a multitude of sins. This is an awesome picture, actually. I love the language here, how it reads in the original language. It means, when we love like this, what happens is, it actually extinguishes or, or suffocates the sin amongst God's people. The picture here, there's a really nice rug up here. Okay, So it makes me think of this, this idea. In the same way that you could, and it would be effective for you to to throw a rug over a fire to to suffocate the flames, right? That that would work. That would be effective. You pull the oxygen out of that fire and it would cease to exist. Peter's using that language here to say, that's what our love for one another does to sin. It covers, it suffocates the things that would corrupt and ruin the body of Jesus Christ. It's awesome. And so practically, practically, what does this mean? What does that look like for you and me? Well, this means letting minor offenses roll off your back. Don't make, you've heard this phrase maybe, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. You ever heard that? Please don't do that. Oh, that person offended me. They don't even know they offended you. Let it go. Goodness gracious. (laughs) This means assuming the best of others. It means being really quick to forgive and to not hold grudges. You know, the only person who suffers from you holding grudges is you. (laughs) 
It means don't hold on to, grasp bitterness in your heart towards others. It means seeking to live at peace with others. Everyone, everyone, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it takes a lot of time. That is your duty, actually, as a follower of Jesus. It means asking yourself, loving others earnestly. It means asking yourself often, often, how can I bless others? How can I be a blessing to other people in and around my life? Peter says, this kind of love, this kind of earnest love, not only keeps us from sin, but helps us to get past sin. So, so, let's not be a gathering of people whose primary thought is, are these people meeting my needs? And what can these people do for me? Let's not be those people. Instead, let's be people whose, who, whose default thinking is, how can I meet people's needs here? And what can I do for others? Just imagine with me, even for just a moment, just a moment, what a community of people would look like who thought like this and earnestly, earnestly, they were diligent, intentional about loving like this. What if every single person, every single one of us who called Freedom Village Church home did this? Loved like this, what kind of church do you think we would be in our city? A really healthy one. Number three. Number three. Because the end of all things is at hand, because the end of all things is at hand, host eagerly. Host eagerly. Look at verse nine. Look at verse nine. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So Peter calls us to be hospitable to one another here. And it's interesting. It's interesting because uh, actually most of the time in the scriptures, we see this call to be hospitable uh, towards those outside of the church. That's a lot of times the context But that's not the case here. Again, we see that phrase, one another. This is the local church. We do this towards those within the body, our local body of believers. And so so we are to be hospitable, in other words, to those who are within our gathering, local church. That's what Peter says. And we are to do this, we are to do this without grumbling. Without grumbling. That is... Do it without complaining that you're being hospitable. It's funny. It's funny to think about that. And so this here, what it is, this is a a calling here for for a glad, open-hearted generosity of welcoming people into your home, welcoming people to what you have. But really, it's, it's more than that. Being hospitable here, it goes beyond just having a person in your home. This is more so, actually, uh, about welcoming people into your life. And again, you don't, you don't do this, he says, with grumbling. Like, oh, I have to let these people in. Oh, you know, that person, please, Lord. No, <laughs> no, right? You don't grumble. In other words, you don't do this because you have to, but because you actually want to welcome other people into your life. That you want to build genuine relationships with others. You want to pursue Jesus in community. Why? Because you know that this is what the Lord desires for you in your life. And let me be really, really clear about this as well, because those of us in room, even this size, those of us watching online, we're all at different spectrums when it comes to being hospitable and, 
and letting people into our lives. And we all have different definitions even of what that means. And so, you know, there's two extremes of this. So let's be clear. This isn't saying that you are obligated to have somebody from our community in your house every single night of the week. Okay, or that you're obligated to have your life open to every single person in the gathering either. But there's a generalization here, an assumption here. That the idea is that you, you, have, you have an open table. You have an open life. Okay? And, and so a good question then to ask, sort of in light of this, sort of to cut through maybe some things that could be confusing here, a good question just to ask ourselves would be, who, who knows me? Ask yourself that. Who knows you? Who knows you? Or, or along with that, then, who are you open with? What does hospitality actually look like in your life, then? Right? I know, certainly, right, COVID has made a lot of these things more of a challenge, really difficult. Some of you, for the last five months, it's been illegal to have anybody in your home, Okay. All those restrictions. But when able, the time will come soon. Time will come soon, I believe it. <laughs> Vaccines are rolling out. I heard that Korea just made a new agreement with America to get vaccines here quicker than expected before. I think it'll happen. So even right now, you can start to prepare your hearts for that, though. I mean, when we're able, when you're able, uh, my ultimate hope is that, that this identity would be, would be in each and every one of us. That it would be part of our lives. And actually, um, actually this is one of the, the goals of, of missional families. It's one of the goals of being in a missional family. That within those groups, uh, within amongst those, that, those body, that, that body of believers, there would be hospi- hospitality shown to one another. That amongst that group of believers, you would find people to invite into your life. That meals would be shared. Actually, for some, some of you don't know this because you've never experienced it because of COVID, but that's an expectation. All of the missional family leaders know that. That's an expectation of missional family, that you share a meal together as a family once a week. It's like a requirement. <laughs> Meals would be shared. Conversations would be shared. Resources would be shared. That they would be a place where you can be known. And you can also get to know others. That's the heart behind our discipleship vehicle here that we call missional families. Which is why I encourage you and to be in one. All of us should be in one. Because this isn't just a suggestion from Peter. It's a command. So that's why we make those sort of environments available to you so that we can help you follow Jesus' commands for your life. So Peter says, since the end is at hand, let's host one another. Host one another. In other words, open your home, but more so, even more so, open your life. Open your life. And then finally, finally, number four, number four, because the end of all things is at hand, Peter tells us to steward, steward faithfully. Number four, steward faithfully. This is verse 10. Look at verse 10. It goes into verse 11 as well, which we'll read in just a second. Verse 10, as each has received a gift... Okay, that's spiritual gifts, not like a skateboard, okay? As each has received a gift, spiritual gifts, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So Peter sees God-given spiritual gifts as tangible expressions of God's varied grace. That's a little wordy, okay? I'll try to explain it another way. Peter's saying, there are a variety of gifts within the church because God's grace is varied as well. 
Or you could think of it this way. These spiritual gifts that God gives are the grace of God incarnate, or they are the grace of God personified, the grace of God displayed to the church, to the world around us. And so we should keep this in mind. Uh, This just hit me actually this week. I'm not sure I actually thought of it this way before, but I think this is a great perspective when it comes to spiritual gifts, that when a person's spiritual gift is being used in front of you, your perspective should be that this is what's happening in front of me. This is not natural. It's not natural. This is actually a supernatural display of the grace of God before my life. You ever think about that? We're going to list a lot of the spiritual gifts, but when someone is using their spiritual gift in front of you to serve you, to show you grace or mercy, or they give you a word of knowledge or, or wisdom or whatever it is, that's not a natural thing. It's God-given, which means it's a supernatural display of the grace of God before you for your good and benefit. It's incredible. Well, then Peter tells us three really important things about these spiritual gifts. I'll just run through them each in like two sentences. First of all, he, he says, and we've already said this, but we have to remember that our spiritual gifts are something that we receive. They're something that we receive, meaning they are not our own, and therefore we cannot and should not boast in our spiritual gifts. They are from God, from God, received from the Lord. Number two, the the gifts that we receive are are meant to be used to serve others, he says. That they are not given to you, in other words, just to to build you up and to make you feel good about yourself. Okay, not at all. They are meant to build others up. They're meant to to, to be used to to strengthen and to serve others. And that that could seem like a lot of different things. Whatever that is for you, I'll speak to my own context because I'm talking about myself. Again, take this. This is not me boasting at all about myself, but I thought about it in my own life. That would, that would be, people have told me at least, oh, you know, Pastor James, you're, you're a good teacher. You're a pretty good teacher. And so, okay, I received that. And, I, and I've seen over the last, whatever, 10 years that, that my teaching can be, has been, not always, it has been a blessing to other people. And so I thought, you know, what this would look like is me announcing today, this is it. I'm done teaching forever to the local church. All the studying and the teaching, I'm going to record myself with a camera and listen to my sermons for me, always, from now on. Okay? <laughs> That's not what's going to happen, <laughs> I don't think. Okay, we'll see how the Spirit leads at the end. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. But doesn't that sound ridiculous? Can you imagine if I was like, you know, I was in my house and I just took the camera and recorded myself and then created my own private YouTube channel and then just did this for me? Only me, one subscriber. It's for me. Can't wait to build myself up this week. You know, but it's as ridiculous as that sounds, okay, that's what we do. And what you're doing, if you're not using your spiritual gift, and you have one, to serve the local church, there's no difference. I might be up on the stage speaking to you from between 45 and an hour and seven minutes a week, depending on how long this goes, okay? I got the tech people laughing in the back, okay? Because my length of my sermon sometimes, okay? It might look different, but for you, you're all gifted. And when you don't, again, It's for you. It means that you're hoarding your gift. Peter says, no, 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 you're missing it. They're not for you. They're for the local church, one another. And then finally, Peter says that, that's why he says, and it will make sense, that these gifts are to be stewarded. That's why he says that, as good stewards of God's varied grace. To steward, to steward something, it means to supervise or to manage. And so literally, Peter's saying that you are called to manage your spiritual gifts. You're the manager of your gifts. That's a really interesting thought, isn't it? That you are the supervisor. You didn't know this. You're a boss. (laughs) All of you are bosses today. You're the boss of your God-given gifts. 
You give it work hours and everything. You decide. Has it been on vacation for the last five years, your gift? Or does it have work hours that you're putting in? You're supervising it. And so ask yourself, how are you managing your gifts? How are you doing with that? And then in verse 11, we see Peter break up these gifts into two categories. Two categories. Look at verse 11. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And so we see here, and you could do this. Um, this would be good, good theology, systematic theology at least. We see here, there are really two main categories of spiritual gifts. You see this all throughout the scripture. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. They're categorized that way. Now, Peter doesn't specify what the list of gifts are here, but we know elsewhere in scripture what they are. Okay? That there are speaking gifts, which would be things like prophecy, teaching, wisdom, tongues and interpretation, discernment, exhortation. And then there are serving gifts. There's so many, but I'll just name a few. There's the gift of generosity, the gift of mercy, the gift of helping, the gift of leadership, the gift of healing, many, many more. And so, of course, I know, right? I thought through this myself for you on your behalf because I love you. Okay, your next question sitting there is going to be, well then, okay, what's my spiritual gift? You're sitting there, you just listen to those gifts listed, and you're like, is that me, is that me, is that me? So what's your spiritual gift? And let me just give you a, a really small tip on that. Okay? Now, a couple options here. You could spend money to find out your spiritual gifts. There are tests that have been written, really good ones. I've taken a few. Okay? I had to do that in seminary. You extensively go through and find your spiritual gifts. But you know what? I heard somebody, uh, I heard somebody a long time ago uh, say this, and I think it works in terms of finding your spiritual gift. Small tip on that. You're going to be frustrated by it, some of you. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. He said, don't go searching for your gift, but let your gift find you. What, I, what he meant by that, and what I, what I mean by that, is if you want to know what your spiritual gifts are, or your gift, everybody has at least one. A lot of us have many. If you want to know what your spiritual gift is or what your spiritual gifts are, just look for the needs around you and seek to fill them. Supply, supply what people need. Seek to do that diligently. Love them. And I promise you, I promise you, if you just move towards people in love, your spiritual gifts will find you. They will. Just start praying, serving, giving, helping, attempt to teach others, and in time, you will walk right into your spiritual gifts. Other people will affirm that in your life as well. You'll see you'll see what brings you joy when you love other people in these variety of ways. And you'll see how God uses you to bless others. You'll see it tangibly, they'll tell you. So for example, for example then, what do I mean by that? I'll try to be practical again for you. For example, if someone is sick around you with fullness of faith, Put your hands on that person and pray for them and ask God to heal them. I'm not being controversial with this. I don't mean lay your hands on them and say, God, if it's your will that this person isn't sick. No, God, in Jesus' name, heal that person. Full of faith. See what happens. How do you know you don't have the gift of healing? You've maybe never tried if a friend is really discouraged amongst you, maybe you have the gift of encouragement. Find out. Take them out to coffee. Give them words of encouragement. Not self-help, but tell them the gospel. Speak the gospel into their life. See what happens. If there's anyone in your life with a financial difficulty, consider how much you've been blessed. And then 
consider how you can help meet that need in this season. Because maybe you have the gift of generosity. Maybe a coworker has a question about God, about Jesus, or about the church. You can always message me, another one of your leaders. Sure, you can do that. We're available to you. I'm available to you. You know if you've reached out to me. But what about, what would it look like if you did some research yourself? And then you began to try to walk through some of the Bible with them yourself. Maybe you do have the gift of teaching. My point is, just just love people. Just earnestly seek to love other people. And then let that love lead you to serve. So use your gifts, Peter says. Don't hoard them. Don't hoard them. And again, I think you've gotten this because I've already sort of stated it, but I'll say it really clearly. By the way, this 100% applies to every single Christian listening to these words right now. It applies to you. No one is excused from this point. If you are in Christ today, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been fact you have been given a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts your gift might be laying dormant right now maybe it is undiscovered but what you have been given by the lord is for us here for us here to build to strengthen And to sanctify us to be more like Jesus. So are you stewarding your gift? Or are you keeping it for yourself? Peter says, since the end is at hand, steward what God has given you faithfully. Steward it. Manage it well. And then he ends with the purpose of all of this. With his big why. He's given us some whys every time. But then he gives us the big why, the purpose. He says, do all this, all of these things, do all this in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He says, do all this, do all this so that God, so that God can be seen as good, glorious, powerful, and as valuable as he really is in Jesus. Live your life in such a way. Church, live your life in such a way that reflects these massive realities of the goodness of God. To this God, he says, to this God, to this God alone, belongs unspeakable, incomparable worth and unsurpassed, insurmountable power and authority forever and ever. So as Jesus' people, as end-of-the-age people, we are meant, we are called to display something of God's glory through our corporate shared lives together as his local church. We are called to show the world. Your calling is to show the world that God is your greatest good, your highest hope, your ultimate rest and reward, your supreme satisfaction. We, the body of Christ, the local church here, we are called to show the world that he is the center of our lives. And one of the main ways that we accomplish that, we do that, is by loving and serving one another in the church. So Freedom Village family, let me ask you, let me ask you this. Think about this. How would you live your life? How would you live your life if you knew that Jesus was returning next week? How would you live your life if you knew? He gave you revelation. He's not going to, but if he gave you revelation of the day and the hour, peer to you, how would you live this week? How would you relate to others here 
How would you relate to others here differently if you knew he was coming in the next month? I say that to say because I say that because Peter is in effect. In effect, he is saying, live that way today. Do that today. Because he might. He might be here next week. He might be here next month. So live as end of age people. Pray soberly, love earnestly, host eagerly, and steward faithfully. Which means and will require you to belong to a local church, to get involved, to get to know people, to love, to serve. And if we do that, I think we'll be amazed, just amazed at what the Lord will do among us. Let me pray for you.